take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to this episode of Field Preachers. I'm your host, Rachel Gilmore. Super, super excited to be doing an interview dialogue conversation today with um, the great Matt Johnson, who is currently serving at Suncrest UMC in Morgantown, working with college students, young adults, and folks in recovery. But Gosh, we met like what a decade ago? Oh no, something like that. Yeah, you were you were my brother's pastor in Virginia Beach, and we met when we came out to Virginia Beach to uh, visit him. So it's yeah. been a long time. He was a great guy. I'm like, well, you have a brother that's a church planter. We definitely have to connect. So it's been fun to swap stories and stay connected, you know, on Facebook and in other ways. So uh, getting the email about all the work and research you've done on. Church plants. Um, I think the title of the dissertation is "Redeeming Failure: How the Stories of Failed Church Plants Point Towards Fruitfulness." And yeah. I could not put it down because, I mean, so many church plants do fail. And I think something that we need to learn more about in the United Methodist Church is how to fail forward, how to fail well, and learn from it. And this is an example of us moving in the right direction. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, for sure. Um, so I kind of want to dive right into some of uh, what I read in your dissertation so we can talk more about it one on one. And I loved in the opening, you shared some research that uh, in the first 10 years of the Path One initiative, which is, you know, where I'm working now. So that piqued my interest. Uh, the UMC started more than a thousand new faith communities that had more than a hundred thousand people in attendance between all of those, uh, which is indicative of what we hear, right? We start new churches because they tend to grow more quickly, have a higher worship attendance, higher giving. Um, So that's all good. And even Lifeway did research and found that the UMC churches were more vital than other denominations who are starting ones. And yet, like in that very next paragraph, you talk about how only 42% of these Methodist church starts were self-sufficient. So, and if you're not self-sufficient by year five, then it really is almost impossible to to move in that direction. So, um, you know, I love that you said 58% of new churches that have been started by the UMC in the past decade are considered unsustainable by the denomination. Um, Ugh, what do we do about that? That's such a huge problem, and and, and somehow on some level, I think it's uh, a problem that that lies in um, our funding structures. That both it's expensive to start a new church, and so trying to figure out how we allocate resources appropriately and and in a way that's going to you know lead towards the the greatest amount of success, I think is an important thing. Uh, and that's hard, and it's hard to kind of know how to balance all that with our with our structure and education levels that we need to have in place. Uh, it, it's hard because at some level you want a certain amount of failure, right? If you're not having a certain amount of failure, it means you're not being um, innovative enough and you're not trying to enough new things. You're not finding new ways forward. And so a certain amount of failure is, is appropriate, right? But is it, is the failure that we've experienced in Methodism maybe higher than what we would hope? I think that's absolutely true. I think that's an absolutely true uh, scenario. I hope that we've learned in the last decade that there are some better ways to start churches than what we've done before. Um, I've been involved in a parachute drop situation. Those are difficult, difficult ways to do that. And I just, I'm not sure that those are setting people up for the best success. And so I hope that we've come up with new plans, but kind of the resources we put around people, the coaches we put around people, the spiritual direction we put around people, the teams we put around people are a really important conversation for us to have moving forward so that we can maybe see that number move from uh, 
40% to something a little higher than that. Absolutely. And I think this is, it was so timely, the email I got with your dissertation work, because I've been getting calls from folks across our connection saying, hey, you know, is our tr- are our church plans not really working because we don't provide any coaching at all, any type of assessment? I'm like, ding, ding, ding. Like there are these basic best practices. Yeah. You want to make sure you have the right person in the right context, that they have that ongoing mentorship. And then you mentioned in here, I think it's spot on that the more money you give church plants, uh, the higher the chance that it will not be self-sustaining. And so I love that North Texas and other annual conferences now have like a matched giving and it's really structured and the same funds are available, but it, they put it out over a longer amount of time so that you can become self-sustaining. Cause I was okay. Ready? You're a church planter. I am. It killed me. I, I was, I had the opportunity to review a planting proposal where they would spend, in essence, close to a million dollars on a parachute drop with someone not from that context. And I was like, all of that sounds horrible. And they voted to just go ahead and do it anyways. And I'm like, why? Why do we? I just, I'm banging my head against a wall, you know? Oh, yeah. And and I think that that's such a problem. But I think part of the problem is that um, some of our existing churches are unwilling to do that work in their own backyards. And so there's got to be more buy-in from existing churches as we kind of overcome that, um, that territory bias and that territorial idea about how we, how we handle things. And, and so there's this tension that exists, I think, between the annual conference and who says we, we need to start a new church in this area between local churches that aren't sure, you know, it's a com- almost a NIMBY kind of situation, not in my backyard. Right. And so how we balance <laughs> that is such a, is such a hard thing uh, because, you know, I think in one of the stories that I that I heard, um, someone said they they gave us just enough money to fail, which I just thought, oh, oh man. You know, so it's a lot of money, but is it enough money to do the the work? Is it the money being used well? Isn't being used in the most effective and efficient ways? They're hard questions. They really are, and and um, the 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 impact or the 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 um, concerns are not just financial, they're also personal, right? Because we're asking people to do really hard work. And so that can really impact how they feel and how they they feel in the long run. So it's a, there's a, there's a big balance there, I think. Well, and I love that, you know, echoed throughout your research was this fact that it's so ironic that in church planting, sometimes it's the most connected we've ever felt to the community that gathers because we're all kind of those spiritual nomads together and there is this deep sense of belonging. And yet it's the loneliest time for all the planters you interviewed. I think for, you know, at least in my own experience, my colleagues were just so harsh. And there was a man that like knocked another pastor that was like seven miles away from my plant that like stormed in my living room one Friday night to just cuss me out and tell me to stay away the whole not in my backyard. And I'm like, no one from your church has ever, like my job is to reach people not connected to a church. I'm not here to compete. So, I mean, how do we combat that? Just this competitive nature and how isolating that makes planters feel. I often wonder if part of the reason that the local churches and pastors feel that way is because they are in their church on Sunday morning. And they don't realize the number of people who aren't, right? And so, you know, what we see on Sunday morning is hopefully full church and we see things bustling or we see opportunities to grow and we think we can do this. We don't walk around the community on Sunday morning and see that 
you know, coffee shops are full and Panera's full. And if you want to get groceries on Sunday morning, it's a nightmare. And, you know, one of the blessings of being a church planter initially when you start is you don't necessarily have any place to be on Sunday morning. And so if you go out and walk your community on Sunday morning and realize there are so many people who are not in church, the, the feeling of competition seems to, seems to dissipate, right? Because you realize there's an opportunity that maybe is bigger than that. I wonder if pastors haven't done that in a long time because mm-hmm. they're so committed to being in the places where they should be that they've kind of forgotten the number of people, the number of opportunities that go beyond just their building. You know, I, I don't know. I wonder about that. Yeah, well, and with the future of Methodism being one that isn't as well-funded, right, where we're going to have to learn to start new churches, I think the average is about $300,000 that they put into a church plant. We won't have that moving forward. I love that Path One has responded by we're coming up with this online training for laity, how to train laity to plant, plant in teams, plant solo, and it might be more of a fresh expression. It might not be a mega church on Sunday, but you know, is that really what we need? Or can we turn to our local churches, like you said, and say, you guys are healthy, you're thriving. What if you create a multi-site, an extension of your ministry in a neighboring community? So again, there's that partnership and relationship and support financially. And I'll tell you too, uh, part of the thing that concerns me is I think that there's a disconnect often between denominational leaders and executives and church planters about what the church should look like. And so for church planters, there's this idea that says to, to start a fresh expression kind of movement, to start a, a series of micromissional communities, to do that work that is often fruitful isn't what they're hoping for. Right. And so I, I like to draw the uh, one of the things that I say about my own church planting experience is that my church planting experience was fruitful, but not successful. Mm. And that's a that's for me, that's a, a really important distinction that I've come to make. And so I think that there can be a fruitful a fruitfulness to church planting in whatever si- situation and setting, but it may not look what. It may not look like what we expected when we started. I don't know how we get people to be okay with that, right? I don't know how we get to, you know, I don't, how do we get um, denominational leaders and executives and superintendents and other pastors to say, just because you don't have 150 or 250 people in a building, but because you've got these groups that are invested in deeply in their communities, doesn't make it any less successful. That's a real, diff- it's a very difficult place to sit and a very difficult balance to, to kind of hold because I think the expectations are different on the, on the part of church planters as they are often on, uh, on the part of denominational executives. Absolutely. Well, and I feel like that's a perfect segue for you to tell us more about your story. Like, you know, what was fruitfulness in your context just from start to finish? We want to know more about what God called you to do. Yeah. So I was uh, invited to, to plant a, a new church in uh in Northern Kentucky, um, in the Cincinnati suburbs. And I jumped at that opportunity. Now I'm not, I'm not a native Kentuckian. So I'm not from Kentucky. Uh, and this was not a community that I was uh, aware of or knew anything about. And I think that's an important distinction to make, particularly in parachute drops. If you look at parachute drops in our denomination that are, that are successful and have taken off, and there are great examples of those churches that have done that, many of those situations my my read on that is that the planter already had familiarity with the context. They grew up there, they went to school there, they, they already knew folks when they walked in. And so there was already a network established for them to kind of step into, even if it wasn't a formal network. It was such, such an important thing. So anyway, I, I did some, uh, some, some new church planting in northern Kentucky and um, did all the things you're supposed to do, right? I... I 
I tell people that I'm not, I don't have many marketable skills, but I, but I know somebody, I'm a great networker. <laughs> and so for me to meet people and talk to people is, is easy. And I, I did that. I went to business networking events and I made up pretend titles so that people would talk to me about <laughs> their lives and just telling them I was a pastor. You know, um, I, I like to tell people that I was the director of dangerous ideas, you know, so I worked for a small nonprofit as the director of dangerous ideas. And that really got people's attention. Um, but you know, so I mean, I, I showed up in these places and did this work and started to gather people. I, I was working under the assumption that there would be some support from the district. I didn't have a, a, a base church to work with, but was said, oh, the district is going to support you. And it was being advertised as a district-supported church plant. Um, that's not a real thing, as I, as I have come to learn. Uh, there's, that's not something that... Um, that, that people work because there's no ownership, right? And so nobody feels like they can they can be involved or, you know, be engaged with that. And so um, that's an important thing to kind of think about. How, who's going to be the foundational base? Where's going to be, where's gonna, where will the team come from? Where will the support come from from the planter as they're moving forward? Because just saying from some of you people is not enough. Uh, so we did that work and um, started to kind of gather people. Um, the people that, that I was gathering were not the people I expected because that's just how God works. It's not the way you anticipate things shaking out. Uh, but we started some, we started to have public worship eventually and, and things were, things were moving, things were moving slower than I would have hoped. Uh, and then there were some real, we ran into some bumps and some difficulties, uh, on personnel and, and, um, a worship leader that we needed to let go and just some really difficult times that caused some some shifts. What I saw, though, was we were able to embed ourselves in the community around us really well. And so I became um, a regular at a, at a local bar and played uh, bar trivia. And next thing I knew, you know, Beth and I went and then a couple Beth and I and a couple friends went and then Beth and I and a couple of their friends went. And it wasn't uncommon for us to show up to bar trivia with 30 people. Wow. Uh, and so in some ways, we made those contacts and inroads and I always told people when you, when you hear tip really well and be very friendly, right? Because part of what we're doing here is connecting with the staff. And so we saw, you know, uh, staff come to faith in Jesus and, and find new, new life. Uh, I got to know the bar owner really well. And, and uh, he, he once told me, I, I want, he once introduced me to his mom and said, mom, this is my pastor. And she said, I never knew we'd have to buy a bar to get you back in church, which is just a, which is just a mine. And so we made really great inroads there, and, and we saw a lot of people come to faith. We saw a lot of people who were um, coming to faith in Jesus and, and finding connection and began to talk about how we could start to move towards a, a micro-missional community model and did some of that work. Um, but in, in, a, in all honesty, we, we, ran out of, um, we ran out of time, and we ran out of money, and um, the anxiety and workload for me got to be – almost too much. It was almost unbearable. Uh, and so when I, when I look back on that time, I look back on that time with a lot of fondness because we made great relationships and saw, you know, we baptized folks and you know, married folks and saw lives changed. And what's interesting now, particularly with the advent of social media, is I can look back and see the number of people who I was in relationship with who would not come to my church who are now attending church, right? Because mm-hmm. I was able to play a, a, a part in that role. I think church planners have to understand that they are um, really engaged with the work of provenient grace. If you don't believe in provenient grace, this is not the right gig for you, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was a hard thing to say goodbye to. It was a hard thing to leave. Um, and it was a hard thing to leave and say, well, I think I was a failure in this. Um, but I've, I've, you know, like I said, I've, as I've sat, as I've, as I've sorted through it, um, 
failure and fruitfulness are not always the same thing. And so being able to say it was a fruitful experience, it was a fruitful time, and lives were changed, um, even if it didn't go the way that I had hoped and dreamed in the long run. Absolutely. And I wonder, um, just across our connection, when it comes to benchmarks and metrics and what makes something successful, is it breaking that, you know, 200 barrier and being fully funded and self-sustaining by, you know, the 18 month mark, which is just unrealistic. Who is setting these benchmarks? Is it being done between the planter and the DS and their coach? And as you mentioned in some of your conversations with other planters, something that really sped up the decline of the church and it eventually closing was just a shift, a new DS, a new developer, a new bishop, someone who doesn't share that vision and changes the game can totally corrode all this beautiful work that's been done. Yeah. Well, I wonder what it would look like for us to kind of change some conversations about benchmarks. So one of the things I always wanted to report, but people weren't sure they wanted to hear it, was uh, I wanted to report um, intentional discipling relationships. So who are the people that I'm engaged with on a weekly basis in intentional ways to think about discipleship, right? Because if you, you know, as Mike Breen says, if you make disciples, you'll get a church. If you start a church, you might get disciples, right? Yeah. And so again, that's a shift. It's a much smaller shift where we're focusing on the few to reach the many rather than trying to start as big as we can. So I, I always like to say these are the number of intentional discipling relationships that I'm in that I'm involved with. I wonder what it would look like for pastors uh, to be able to um, think about their community involvement. So how often do pastors or do, do planners engage people who are outside of faith? And that wasn't ever a number that was counted, right? And so um, I, I always felt like I was doing the hard work. And when you think about um, kind of the, the, the ways that you think about people coming to faith, maybe I'm moving somebody a step closer, but they haven't crossed that threshold yet, right? Because there, there are a lot of people that are more than one or two steps away from faith. There's a lot of two, a lot of people who are much farther away than that. And so to be able to say, are you doing the work to... to meet the people and engage the people. How does that get counted, right? Because those are not things we count. We count professions of faith. We count baptisms. Baptisms. We count, you know, people in the pews. But there's a lot of other work that goes on behind that in terms of community involvement, community engagement, uh, and discipleship work that doesn't count as easily. And so shifting the metrics on that, particularly if, if, the, if the church plant is uh, maybe intentionally smaller or maybe uh, the idea that it's going to grow at a slower rate, but at a more sustainable rate. Uh, I think those are important conversations to have. And in my, and in my experience, those things haven't been counted. Absolutely. And what would happen to our denomination if we didn't only require church planters to share about the relationships they had with unchurched folks in their community, yeah. but and, and not just established church pastors, but even laity in established churches, because I've, I've helped put together this um, new training called New People in New Places. And how do we leave our established churches and from Sunday afternoon through Saturday evening, go out and live into Matthew 28, make disciples as we are going. And, and when I pull the lady in all these trainings and I'm like, go out and, and with your, you know, folks disconnected from a faith community, tell them about Jesus. And they're like, wait, we don't know anyone outside of the church. And I'm like, how can we be the church if we right. are not engaging with our neighbors, our brothers and sisters? Well, I think it would be, and I, I was actually having a conver- this conversation with a, a DS not too long ago. I think it would be fascinating to, to force or to ask um, local church pastors to count the number of community connections they have that are outside of the church. 
And I think it'd be fascinating for two reasons. One, I think it'd be encouraging to pastors to say, hey, move beyond the walls of your church. But if you counted those things in an official capacity, it would say to board, to, to administrative councils and to staff parish relations people and to church members, we value this, right? And so you might think your pastor needs to be in the office. You might think your pastor needs to be able to come to your beck and call, but we value a pastor in the United Methodist Church who's not just pointed to a church, but appointed to a community and is involved and engaged in meaningful ways. And uh, I think that would be such a shift for us, but I think it'd be such a powerful shift for us. Wouldn't it? I was talking to um, Matt Temple, who's a developer in North Texas. He's also a church planter. And he has folks list every ministry, every connection, every relationship that they have in their local church. And mm-hmm. then they put it along a spectrum. Is it transactional where it's about I'm right. providing a service or a need? down to a relational where it's a story and the fact that I care that is the reason behind this activity. And then the other spectrum is guesting and hosting. Are we hosting it? Do we decide and control the time and where it happens or is it up to the community? And, and like across the board, every church I've done this with is like, wait, what's guesting? Where do I not control things? Where am I not scheduling it in my church building for the set time? And it's like, how can we be, alive in the community and let them know we care if it's all about us and we hold all the control. Right. I think it's such an, I think it would be such an important shift that would be revitalizing to so many churches. And I said, not just plants, but I think so many churches, but I think that absolutely should be a benchmark for planters. And in most cases and scenarios, it's not. I also think that we have to realize that ministry is radically inefficient work. And in a culture that values efficiency and that values getting things done quickly and, you know, values making this work happen, ministry is really inefficient. It really is. I mean, so the work that we're doing with people is slow and long and hard. And what would it look like to say that the pastors and planters be inefficient? Not that you're not working hard, but that the work that you're doing can be and is allowed to be inefficient. Um, yeah. Because in, in so many settings, I think that would be a positive thing. It would allow us to invest in people and in situations and in circumstances that maybe we pass over or gloss over where there's tremendous opportunity. Mm-hmm. So along the lines of like the sustainability issue, which I know yeah. came up in your story and in the stories of so many other planters, like it's just so hard, especially in our system, when you have base salary and you have pension, you have housing allowance, all that kind of stuff. It yeah. It's so, uh-huh. you know financially heavy, especially starting off when, when you do have few people and maybe you're doing a house church movement or micro communities. One of the suggestions that's come back from developers is, Oh, well let's give them a two or three point charge and then have them plant. And I can't even fathom, even fathom, even if it was just one church trying to meet all of the expectations and obligations of that church and then plant something totally new. Um, but I, I realize the bivocational method is working for a lot of non-denoms or other denominations. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, the only way I could ever fathom doing that is if I had like a nine to five Monday through Friday job where, you know, maybe I work the front desk at a school so I can kind of build those relationships and meet people, punch that clock, get my medical, get a little bit of salary. Um, but I can't imagine doing full-time ministry in a church and planting. What are your thoughts oh, on that? Okay. I don't know how people do that. And in, in one of the stories that I, that I heard from someone, one of the people that I talked to and interviewed shared that story. They'd been told that they were going to um, kind of 
work with a, a, an, an existing church while they're planning this thing on the side and it did not work well. And the, and the concern was more around the existing church because the existing church demanded more time and made more effort and energy than maybe they were used to. They weren't used to having a part-time person. And we all know that part-time ministry is maybe a pretend thing. And so, you know, that's a, that's, that's a lot of, you're, you're putting, you're putting someone in a really difficult position. You're putting someone in a place with a lot of challenge. I think it'd be much better to say to someone, find a job for 20 hours a week, right? Work at Starbucks, find a job for 20 hours a week. That's going to help with some of this, help with some costs and help kind of make some, make some salary, but also understand that, that you need to have your afternoons free for meeting with people, or you need to have your, you know, give that, to give that space because the other concern and all that is burnout is so high in church planters and even folks who have successful churches that are growing and, and, and exciting and moving experience debilitating burnout and we lose, we lose them and the church in one fell swoop. And so, uh, you know, finding that balance of what, it, what would it look like? What's there to ask a planner to do that is a community connected job. And listen, they're going to be so much more successful with a community connected job because there's opportunities to engage new people than they are at a, in an existing church. But once again, I don't know that that's always the conversation you want to have because the institution really always wants to work, sustain itself. And so I'm not sure that's ever the way we want to move forward with that. Absolutely. It's so yeah. hard. We have so much work to do in terms of, the healthiest, best paradigms. And I would say, you know, just to be fair in case people are listening to this and freaking out that the only way you could, you know, have an established church appointment and try to plan out of it, if it's like a church of 10 people and all they want is Sunday morning, they don't want to do Bible studies. They don't want to be a part of this new faith community. They don't care. And so you can just spend that hour Sunday, visit, you know, one or two folks a week, but then all the rest of your time can be committed to planting that. That's probably the only way, but if they have any type of expectation that you're there, even part-time, which we all know means full-time, it's just, you're right, it's going to expedite the burnout, which we see across the board from planters where the churches end up being sustainable to ones where they close. And I was really um, taken back. It was insightful for me and important for me to hear the stories that you shared from other church planters where the plant closed and they left the ministry entirely. Like they were done, done. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because again, we're losing some of our most innovative and uh, engaging folks. These are the folks who've gone through the process and have said we're committed to this and and we, we lose them. And that's, that's difficult for the denomination. And it's also the amount of grief that people felt in that process for them is, is very real. And, And it's a, it's a thing that we, uh, we're not sure that we're asking people to do. One of the stories that I that I've told and, and someone that I actually had an opportunity to coach for a while was someone who was working with kind of, kind of a, a legacy plant congregation where there was a legacy church that was supposed to have a transition plan to kind of become a new church start. So the legacy church was going to close and leave building and assets. And there's this new church starting kind of in the midst of that. And I think that's a fascinating idea. I wonder if there's places that we could work that. That has to be so carefully negotiated and understood by all parties going in, right? The expectations have to be very, very clear and cannot change. And that's going to require a lot of, uh, of, of work from denominational executives to come in and say, no, this is what you agreed to. Right. This is what we've decided to do, because in the long run, people are going to be thrilled about that. But I wonder about the model. I wonder if that's a possible model to kind of move some churches through it through a transition period and how that might work um, with the right support around it. I don't know. I, it's one that intrigues me. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I know that's how 
that's one of the models Matt Mayofsky has used, right? right. The gathering where they have said, okay, this is a legacy aspect. There's a season where worship as they know it continues, but then that shift happens. Um, yeah. but I think you're right. Being extremely clear about it. And I, I didn't do a legacy. My church plant, um, gosh, seven years in merged with an existing church, right. about 50 people in their seventies. But my gosh, we had this whole, before their charge co- church conference vote, we had pictures. This is what ev- every room will look like. There will be a screen in the sanctuary. Like we're not going to fight. We're not going to go back to Egypt. We are moving forward. This is what the leadership will look like. Uh, it will be a 60, 40 majority on every committee so that we're not fighting about the way things were and the way things will be. We've just got to do this in a healthy way. And I, it was still a bumpy road, right? The whole form, storm, norm, uh, perform right. model. But, um, but it was so much healthier than it could have been if, yeah, we'd done the back and forth or not been really intentional. I think that's a, I think that's an important thing. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. So how we handle that. And again, interesting model, but it has to be handled very, very carefully. Yes. Well, and I, I love in your dissertation, the time that you spent talking about, and maybe this connects to the burnout that a lot of planters experience. You talked about the temptations that planters mm-hmm. face and tied it in with like this wilderness experience. And the three temptations that you mentioned, uh, I think connected to the work of Mike Breen were um, appetite, ambition, and affirmation. Do you want to yeah. say a little bit more about that? So I think that church planting is very much a wilderness experience. And I don't mean that in an all bad way, right? The wilderness is a place where you experience in the biblical text where there's a tremendous hospitality, there's tremendous opportunity to grow into a connection and dependence on God. There's opportunities to move away from the old and in the Old Testament, the urban is, is kind of painted as a negative thing and wilderness is painted as a place where God moves. But to say that this is a wilderness experience is not necessarily an all bad thing. But I do think that there are that there are challenges that you face in the wilderness, and you see that in the scripture. So I think about when Jesus is is um, driven out into the wilderness immediately following his baptism. Uh, his his identity has been confirmed. His mission is in front of him, and before he begins that work, he moves into the wilderness for this time of of fasting and prayer. And in that moment, he's tempted, and he receives these three temptations. And and, and as you mentioned, I, I say their appetite. Um, ambition and affirmation, uh, and, and the 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 idea of appetite is that there's not going to be enough, and so we're kind of grabbing and consuming, hoarding all that we can. And sometimes that that's a, a temptation for planters to say, "There's not enough money. There's not enough resources." We begin to kind of believe this this other thing. We begin to 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 um, to believe in our own ability and strength to make this work happen rather than God's ability and strength flowing through us. And, and Jesus responds when, you know, the man should not live by bread alone. He's saying, I'm not going to make this happen. I'm not going to force this. And so for planters, I think the, 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 uh, the temptation is to say, we're going to try and force this to happen. We're going to try and make this happen instead of kind of trusting God in the process. Uh, we're going to try and consume the resources that are around us and, and make things, you know, make, make bread out of stone rather than sticking uh-huh. to the script. Uh, then the, the temptation around uh, affirmation is a temptation to be seen and noticed. And, and man, every planter I've met, every planter I've talked to has some level of that that's either put on them or is in their DNA. You've got to have some of that to be a little bit, to be crazy enough to do this, right? But it's a temptation to say, uh, I'm, I'm going to build the biggest church and do the biggest work and, and make sure that I'm seen and, and have visions of grandeur that kind of, the kind of dash in our head. And, uh, the, the temptation for affirmation is for people to say, you're doing a great job and this church has changed my life. And, and the problem is 
people's uh, work of affirmation changes so quickly. And so when, when our whole hope is rooted in people's understanding of us and, in, and seeing us and affirming us, there's going to be a lot of really difficult days. And then ambition is this idea that Jesus is tempted to rule, the, to rule all the kingdoms, you know, to bow down and, you can, and I'll give you all this. And, and again, I think that's a, a major concern for church planters. Do the, is the ambition that we have our own personal ambition or is it ambition for the gospel? Is it ambition for the kingdom? Are we willing to do the nitty gritty work of moving into difficult places rather than kind of trying to, to, to build the biggest thing in the fastest way? Uh, those are, I real, think, real temptations that we all face and how we handle those is a, is a big question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I really resonated with your part about ambition because most of the planters I've talked to, I don't know, what's your, do you know your Enneagram number, Matt? I don't, I'm not, I'm not I've never done Enneagram. Oh my gosh, you have to get it for me because a lot of the um, planters I've talked to have been threes or sevens and threes like to do, do, do and accomplish, to be seen, to be affirmed and sevens have that charisma and charm and they like to be that leader that people follow and I'm like, wow, it's, it's amazing to see that temptation um, really become a hurdle for some of Absolutely. us that, that need to make sure, as you said, that we're grounded in the kingdom of God and not, you know, our own success or reputation or growth. Um, and yeah. and it, it sounds like all of the planters that you interviewed really did have a heart in the right place. They were just innovative people that wanted to reach people um, with the grace of Jesus. Um, Oh, I think, again, I think that that's absolutely accurate. I think people are absolutely, I think a lot of planners are putting time and energy and effort into this work because they just, they want people to meet Jesus. They want people to see lives changed and transformed. I I think that there's, there's no question about that. I think those temptations are real, but like you said, how we handle those is there's always the shadow side, right? And so how we handle that, that sense of charisma and, and connection and, and, it, it, those are difficult. Those are those are important conversations to have, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And and somehow remembering that the way of Jesus is the way of downward mobility. Again, I don't know how we hold that in church planting, right? Because in many of these situations and circumstances, you get when you get paid for a church plant. Um, the conference kind of makes a big deal about it, right? Because we're excited about this new venture. We're excited about our ministry. And we're excited about that we're spending enforcement dollars. We want people to know. And so finding a way to, to, to kind of hold those things in tension um, is, a, is an important thing. So uh, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, a real, there's a real balance there, I think, for planters. Absolutely. And I think uh, for me, I just try to remind myself and other planters that it comes down to like that humility piece, that coachability that, you know, we all want to really have a big impact for the kingdom, but are we open to really hearing wisdom from people that care about us or coaching us along that way? Um, So I think that can help stave off that temptation towards appetite and ambition. Um, So something that I, again, like an aha moment for me as I was reading your work was the number of people you interviewed whose plans had closed that said, this was like the first time anyone had asked them to share their story or thoughts. Like, why are we not connecting not only to provide like spiritual um, care for them, you know, grief counseling, whatever it might be, but also to just learn from it so that, you know, throughout our connection, we can do a better job of, of ending things well or making choices so that they don't have to end. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, I, the reason I wrote this paper is because I knew there were other people like me who would have the experience of, of starting a new church, of investing in it and not watching it be successful, and then just kind of disappearing into the darkness, right? There were stories that needed to be told, and there were things that those folks had learned that we weren't hearing. Uh, I think we, I, th- I mean, 
I think it's because we live in a culture that's obsessed with puppies, right? We love things that are new, right? Puppies are cute <laughs> and fun. And so if you go online, there's lots of pictures of puppies, right? There's not as many pictures of, of like 13 year old dogs that have been to the war. Like that's just not what we see. And I think it's, that plays out in a lot of ways. And so we like the next new thing in the church. We want to be looking for that. We're excited about that. We're hopeful that these new things we develop can help in many ways save the church, right? We hear these stories of denominational decline and, and numbers that go down and all this kind of these stories. And so if there's ways that we can combat that we want to do it but if there's ways that we can talk about that that don't work i'm not sure we want to hear those stories as clearly we're uncomfortable with this uh this lack of success right and we don't know what to say to people you know when they come and they say that this happened well how do you respond to them and you and and you know notice that and be grateful for that and those are difficult things and so i i think um i think for conferences to understand that success is a, is a real thing and we need to be talking about it. I'm not trying to take that away, take, take anything away from that, but to regularly um, celebrate the fruitfulness of churches, even if they're not successful churches and, and church plants, I think is an important thing. And to say the work that you've done is something that we value. What can we learn? How do, how do we need to change the way that we do things? How do we need to change the experiences that we've had? How do we need to change the, 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 uh, the ways we, we, we move forward? And I don't think we want to do that because we really like our methods. We really like to stick with the ways that we've done things. We're not sure we know how to, how to move into the grief someone else shares. Because for many people, when a church plant closes, um, when, you, when you close this work that you've invested in, the grief is real. It is a real loss, a real sense of grief. And I don't know that we know how to sit with people in that grief in, in that way. Well, and I wonder if a part of it is, you know, the reason that we start churches is to solely have something to celebrate because when we look across our denomination, right. um, I was reading this article last week that said, oh gosh, this is not even taking into account general conference and the impact that might have, but it said, um, according to the general board of higher ed by 2030, 30% of Methodist churches will be closed. Um, yeah. And that in 2015, 40% of all of our Methodist churches had fewer than 35 people in worship. Right. So when we see that reality around us, we're like, oh, we need a dog and pony show. You know, we need someone up there that's like glitzy and, and sparkles and can just help us forget that we are in decline across the board. And so in a sense, all of us need to embrace the reality of church planting, of going out, making those connections, starting intentional discipleship systems. I mean, what if you found just three people, you're Peter, James, and John, and you just poured into them? And that might not be successful according to any metric out there, but right. but it certainly is fruitful, and we can multiply right. that way. Right. And again, I, I like to say we need to reach the few. We start with the few to reach the many, right? We start with the few to reach the many, and not because that's the right way. That's the Jesus way, right? <laughs> You know, like Jesus did with the disciples in order to reach many. And so when we start the other way, we try and start big and, and you know, with all these folks, I, I'm not sure we're doing ourselves a favor, you know, but that's what's, that's what success looks like. So how do we kind of mark, match, you know, look at the ways we're starting with a few to reach the many? How do we kind of celebrate that little bit of work that's done? Because little work over a long time makes a big difference, you know, mm-hmm. small changes over a long period of time drastically changed the, the trajectory of our lives. So maybe that's part of the work we're doing is little, little bits here and there, little bits here and there. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, and while there are exceptions, you know, to every situation, something I read about in your dissertation that I've witnessed is this disconnect between the judicatory leaders and the planters in terms of how to do this. What are these metrics? Um, Is this just a financial approach to get more money for apportionments at some point or not? Like just that communication, there's a deep breakdown and some conferences do much better than others. But uh, what are some suggestions you have for the church planter out there who feels like their DS or their conference developer or the cabinet staff just doesn't get it? Yeah. As church planters, we need to know how to tell stories really well. Uh, and so uh, there's a book by Annette Simmons called The Story Factor, where she talks a lot about different kind of stories that we need to be able to tell and different ways that we can be able to tell the story. And so find ways that you can tell the story of your church plant in a way that connects to the uh, the priorities of your you know, conference and in a way that connects to the the, the metrics that those who are in power are used to. So what are the celebrations that you're going to be able to celebrate? Tell really good stories. Um, I think that that what, what's difficult about stories um, is that we can tell stories to the next person. But as they work their way up through several levels, the stories dissipate and the numbers become a reality, right? And so how we, how we make sure that those stories translate across the board of the transformation and change that we're seeing in people's lives is very important because by the time you get to the level of a, of a, a bishop or denominational leader, it becomes really easy for them to, to not have time to hear the story and look at the number, right? So how do you kind of make sure that the stories you're telling are powerful stories that are, they're going to carry the weight that you want them to be able to carry. I think that, that honest communication around benchmarks and expectations is crucial. So if there's not honest, realistic communication about what those things are, you're not, uh, you're not, able, you're not going to be able to move forward. And I think that everybody has to agree to those to be assign them. I, I'm not sure how you want to kind of cement those things in. I think that, um, Finding a coach who can help negotiate that relationship or that um, that connection between the planter and the the um, the developer or the superintendent, and say what you're asking this person to do is not fair, or they need to be able to do this, and, and they're not sure they want to. Right? A coach who can kind of understand both of the, both of the dynamics that are at work, who's well respected enough to speak into a situation and be heard is an important thing. I also think that coaches who church plant church planters should be church planters. Like I think that that's a must because if you do not know what it feels like to have nobody show up, you should not be coaching a church planter. Right, we've all been there. You work really hard. You put out all the food, and you're ready. And you're ready. You've advertised it. And you think this is going to happen, and no one walks in the door. Right? Yeah. If you've never had that experience, you aren't able to speak to it very well. And mm-hmm. most most if not most pastors have never had that experience because there's always somebody that shows up at church. Maybe not as many as we hope, but there's always somebody. Right? So so coaches need to be church planters who live that journey. Then, but also can communicate clearly with a sense of respect and authority to denominational leaders about the expectations that are appropriate and the expectations that are not. And so I, I think that finding that person that can help you in that process and that journey to communicate clearly with those people around you is important. I, I think you have to understand that um, you're gonna, there are going to be metrics and, and benchmarks. Those are going to be there. Don't rebel against them. Embrace them in a way that says we can all agree to these. This is what we can all agree to. And do not be afraid to um, communicate on a regular basis if something is not going to happen. Right? The earlier you say it, the better. My dad's a, United, a retired United Methodist pastor, and he says, never surprise your DS. 
right? That's this like that never surprise your developers. <laughs> and I think that that carries some weight when it comes to planting too. Never surprise the developer when you say, oh, we, we you know, well, we thought we had this, but we had, you know, it turns out we've had this since been three months. We know we're heading in this direction. Get ahead of those conversations because as you get ahead of those conversations, there's more opportunity for open communication and honest thought about what could be the reality of the situation. Um, so those are, those are some suggestions I would have right off the top of my head. Absolutely. Those are amazing, excellent suggestions. And, and I love it, especially, you know, when talking about benchmarks, when those are written and they're in black and white, but then you have a way maybe at the bottom to share, here's a story of a transformed life that, that matters too. For me, that's kind of built a bridge between, you know, the judicatory leaders and the planter who's like, it's about more than numbers. And it is, but if you don't share those stories and do it in black and white, do it on video, do it as many uh, ways as possible, then it can be harder for the folks that want to hear it to, to actually yeah, get that message. Absolutely. People, people need, you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to communicate those stories really well, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Planners also need a sense of, of other folks who, who can be with them in the trenches. Um, like you said, our colleagues don't understand this very well, you know, and planting is in many conferences. What I see is that there's a couple plants, maybe there's two or three plants, but there's not a lot of folks. So how do you step beyond conference lines and conference barriers and just some of that innovative work that, that encourages a larger conversation, uh, particularly around adaptive work that says we're changing values and belief systems rather than just little fixes here and there. We're doing really deep adaptive change in, in people's lives and the life of the church. And so making sure people have that support, I think is very, very important. I completely agree. And, and I love that you mentioned the benefit of having a coach who's planted. Cause I do, I agree with you. I think it's crucial. I still remember the first time I poured time and money into this massive event that no one came to yeah. and just how it felt in that moment. Um, but also, like you said, having relationships with your tribe, with other planters that, that get it yeah. to, so, so you can reach out to them when times are tough. And that's why, you know, one of the many things I've loved about my shift here to discipleship ministries in Nashville is the permission giving environment that I did not necessarily expect to experience here. But yeah. the way that I was able to say, listen, church planters feel lonely. They don't know each other. And you, you hardly know the planters in your conference, let alone across conference lines. So, you know, we already did a gathering where we just like rented an Airbnb and invited 14 planters that have been doing it five years or more to just show up and hang out and talk, not to compare, not to compete, but just to, you know, laugh and cry and eat great food together. And it was amazing. And we're going to keep doing those. And then we're doing a pilgrimage um, along the Eastern seaboard or planters that are new at it. I mean, you can learn from planters at any stage, but there's something about looking at someone and saying, you're in your first year too. I don't know if we'll both be here next year. Let's enjoy it. Let's talk. Let's reach out. Let's text and encourage yeah. each other along the way. I remember the first time that I, uh, that I had that happen where no one showed up and I called my coach just, just devastated, you know, and just distraught. And he, he said, you never quit on a Monday. Like you never, like that's, like that was just like, that was his word of advice to me is you never quit on a Monday. And so, you know, last week I was, I was in a coaching conversation with someone that I coach who's getting ready for his first big event. And I was like, listen, this is a reality. And I'm not trying to like, to like right on your parade, but I need you to know going ahead and going into this, that it's a reality that no one might show up. And that's not a reflection on you or your work or your viability. And you never quit on a Monday. Like, just don't, you know, like just keep moving forward. and It's going to be okay. And call them tomorrow. You know, like that's, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, 
it's such an important it's such an important kind of word of advice to have that and to to find people that you can trust and who can kind of help you help see you through the the process because it is draining and it is hard and it is hard on families and it is hard on you know on relationships and all that and so to find people and say you know what this feels like because mm-hmm. not many people do and so finding people who know what that what this experience is is such an important thing Absolutely. I loved um, Christian Kuhn's book, Failing Boldly, and how it just named that theology of failure that I think we are missing in the local church so much, but especially in church planting, that if we are the innovators, if we are kind of the research and development branch of the UMC, then failure is the way to grow and learn and improve. So normalizing that is huge. How... Um, any other suggestions for how we can normalize or help people cultivate a healthy, robust theology of failure? Uh, I mean, I think none of, nobody wants to name it up front that, that we can actually have failure or that that could be a reality. I think naming that is an important thing. Not that we're anticipating that, right? But we name that that is the reality of an outcome that could, that could be there. And, and to understand that um, God even works in failure. That even failure can lead, even failure is, can, can be fruitful. Right, and to draw those to draw those lines for me has just been incredibly helpful. The work that I'm doing is fruitful work, and it's not maybe not going to be successful, but it's going to be fruitful, and I'm going to trust God for those results. I think it's such an important thing. I think about John 15, Jesus says, um, "I'm the vine, and you are the branches," and he talks about pruning. But Jesus always says that the fruit is is God's response, God's promise to us as we enter into the seasons of of rest and work. And as we follow the rhythms that stain us and keep us, we don't force the fruit to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think for, you know, to, to resist the temptation to, uh, to go out to the tree and tape up the orange and say, look at it, it's an orange, you know, but to allow that to work and allow that to happen and to be, and to trust that God is going to to do the fruitful work as you um, stay connected to God, connected to others and stay connected to your community. Is such a powerful thing. In many ways, at this point in my life, I'm almost on my kind of my third church plant. Uh, the first one failed pretty boldly. The second one uh, failed with a kind of with a sizzle. And I've, I've reached this point now where I, where I've started some some new work with folk in recovery. Uh, and in many ways, it's it's a it's um, it works because my mission in, in recovery work is so focused and specific that. Uh, that, I, that I'm able to, to say, these are the people we're really trying to reach. It's how do we tailor it to these specific people? How are we connecting with recovery houses and sober living houses and, and those kind of places? And, and so that is it's such a helpful thing in this process as people say, uh, it's not just everybody. This is going to be for these people. Uh, and because it's connected to a local church, there's some freedom in that that maybe they wouldn't have if I was trying to make dollars work and all those kind of things. So, you know, finding that deep sense of, of, of mission and understanding that failure can teach you things about fruitfulness down the road, I think is an important, is an important piece. Hmm. Wow. Well, I am so grateful for you, for your ministry, for, does it oh, feel like you. amazing to have your dissertation done and be like, Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've, <laughs> well, I, I told some, I told my church council the other day, like I finished my dissertation and said, I have space in my brain for new ideas. So be careful, <laughs> like watch out. I'm going to come up with ideas because you know, I didn't have that for a couple years. I was so focused on getting this work done. And, but now that that's there, I've got, Oh, I'm going to, there's some space to, uh, 
to start to, to be innovative again. So watch out, folks. We'll see what we can come up with. This is what, <laughs> I, what I warned them of a couple of days ago. Well, I look forward to having you back then when you come. All right, up. we'll give it a shot. Innovative we'll, work. We'll talk we'll about. It a shot. We're going to see what we can do. We're talking the about the holy mischief that we're up. Yes, holy spirit shenanigans is what I like to say. So. <laughs> Well, it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing Thank your story you, with us, your you. insights. Yeah. And yeah, if, if you have any questions for Matt moving forward um, or for me or other people that we should be talking to or including these conversations, feel free to email me at rgilmore at umcdiscipleship.org. But um, thanks again, Matt. And we hope you Thank guys you join us next week for our next uh, Field Preachers podcast. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.